All right, learning about Old Norse mythology. Uh, this subsection, subsection is called Land Spirits. Although the sources likewise provide no description of the appearance of another group of demigod-like beings, the Land Spirits, Old Norse Landvetir, singular Landvetir, their description is described very vividly. As their name implies, the land spirits were thought to dwell in a particular in particular features of land. They were fiercely protective of these areas in order to avoid the wrath of the sensitive, finicky, and easily frightened land spirits. These places had a number of taboos attached to them. For example, it was essential to act reverently and solemnly when passing through or by such places. Something as seemingly, seemingly insignificant as making a loud noise could be grave misfortune upon the perpetrator. The first law code in Iceland, 930 CE, instructed those entering the country by ship to remove the carved dragon heads from the fronts of their boats when they sighted land, lest they frighten the land spirits. But these were nothing, the land spirits. But, oh, but there was nothing the land spirits hated more than bloodshed. It was said that during the settlement of Iceland, a man was murdered by his thralls, and no one dared to go near the site for a long time after that out of fear of the outraged land spirits, despite it being a prime place to settle. The land spirits also passionately defended their dwelling places against foreign invaders. The sagas tell that the king of Denmark once set a sorcerer to spy on the Icelanders. The man took a form of a whale and made his way to Iceland, swimming along its southern edge and then up its western coast. As he went, he saw that he too was being spied upon. The hills and mountains were teeming with land spirits. Each time he tried to make his way inland through one of the countless fjords and bays that indent Iceland's coast, the land spirits would come down to the water to bar his way, taking the form of snakes, toads, bulls, or great birds. But when he saw one blocking his course in the form of a cliff giant, the whale-bodied sorcerer's nerves finally failed him, and he retreated to Denmark. The land spirits didn't just punish those who trespassed against them. They also rewarded those who gave them their due. These gifts could be an abundance of crops and herds, luck in hunting and fishing, or useful insights in dreams. The land spirits knew much about the future and sometimes shared this knowledge with those whom they favored. A land spirit was sometimes called an armathor, bringer of prosperity, or a spamathor, a seer. Designations which, in this case, often effectively meant the same thing. An excellent illustration of many of these abilities and gifts comes from the story of a farmer named, named Bjorn in the Icelandic Book of Settlements. Bjorn dreamt that a land spirit came to him and offered him his assistance. Before very long, a billy goat wandered into Bjorn's, Bjorn's farm and joined his herd of goats. The goats had so many kids that year that Bjorn could hardly count them all before he sold them to other farmers on the land, on the island. He became a rich man in such short time that the people started to call him Goatbjorn. Those within seconds 
Those with second sight saw a great throng of land spirits trailing him wherever he went. The worship of the land spirits continued long after the con- conversion to Christianity. In fact, in some places they still venerate they are still venerated to this day. That's the end of that chapter. Chapter 4: Cosmology. The Vikings thought that the world they lived in on a day-to-day basis was just a tiny sliver of the vast, richly varied universe, most of which was invisible to the average eye. <clears throat> we've already seen to we, we we've already seen some degree of this richness in the previous two chapters. Um, two chapters discussions of the beings who inhabited the invisible parts of the con- cosmos. In this chapter, we'll add to that picture by exploring some of exploring those beings' native realms, as well as the Norse conception of how events in those realms and in our own unfolded in time. The Viking Otherworld. The part of Norse reality in which the divines lived and in which the myths took place, the Otherworld, as we call it, was in some ways very remote from the world of everyday existence, but in other ways it was very close to it. For one thing, the deities and other divine beings frequently intervened in everyday existence from their spiritual home, Odin deciding deciding the outcome of a battle, the blows of Thor's hammer manifesting in thunder, land spirits rewarding the favored person with increased herds, etc., Yet the power, decisiveness, and mysteriousness of these interventions indicated their origin in a different plane of reality. This contact between the two aspects of existence could be achieved from the opposite direction, too. That is, humans could travel to the other world and participate in what was going on there, even if their influence in that hallowed land was negligible. Some of the means of accessing the other world mentioned in Old Lorse literature Old Norse literature, including traveling over a rainbow, over the ocean, into darkness, into caves, into particular bodies of water, over mountains, into grave mounds, through waterfalls, and into deep forests and bogs. These should surely be interpreted as journeys into extreme places and situations in order to continue the journey in a vision or possibly, especially in the case of physically impossible feats like climbing up a rainbow, as journeys undertaken while already in a heightened visionary state, such as those that seers, sorcerers, and shamans trained themselves to reach. <clears throat> in any case, these methods for reaching the other world show that the other world wasn't thought of as being located in any particular physical direction relative to the world of everyday existence, up, down, north, south, etc., The direction one should travel to reach it was simply away. The distance was great, but not unbridgeable. Another instance of this paradox of closeness and remoteness was the way the other world was imagined to be once the the traveler made it there. The unfamiliar can only be described by comparing it to the familiar, and accordingly the world of spirit could only be described obliquely and symbiotically with reference to the things of this world. 
Quite naturally, the Vikings described it in terms of their own social world and natural landscape. They portrayed their other world as being a lot like this world, but rarefied and writ large. Everything was greatly intensified. The rich among the divinities were extraordinarily rich, the virtuous were extraordinarily extraordinarily virtuous, and the wise were extraordinarily wise, and the malevolent were extraordinarily malevolent. The grass was greener, the mountain peaks more barren, the ale stronger and finer. The other world was utterly similar to this world, and yet utterly dissimilar to it. It, too, had mead, but its mead was unlike any you have ever had before. Fittingly, the organization of the other world matched the way the Vikings themselves constructed and arranged their farmsteads. A proper Viking farmstead featured a tree or pillar at its center point. The pillar was often a high seat pillar, which stood at the center of a house and provided its foremost architectural support. High seat pillars were thought to possess an inherent mysterious power. Some of the earliest settlers to Iceland brought their pillar with them on their boats, and when they got close to land, they threw it overboard and then settled wherever it came to shore. (laughs) That's interesting. Centrally located trees on whose roots ale was often poured at festivals were thought to possess the same significance and power. Around the pillar, or close by the trees, was a house, a place of shelter, comfort, safety, and familiarity. It was, of course, enclosed by walls and a roof. Around the house were fields of crops and livestock, which were themselves enclosed by fences, landscapes actively maintained by the residents of the farm or for their benefit, but more exposed to the elements than the interior of the house. Beyond the fences was wilderness, an uncultivated place of danger and the unknown, where the elements reigned supreme, but which also provided useful materials for the farm, such as timber and game. Fences weren't just there for the pragmatic purpose of keeping livestock in. They were also there for the magical purpose of keeping injurious denizens of the wilderness from wolves to giants out. Fences marked a boundary between two different states of being, which the Norse called Inangard, Old Norse Inangarther, inside the enclosure, and Utengard, Utengarther, outside the enclosure. Intriguingly, the Vikings thought of their society as possessing the same structure as their farmsteads. Medieval Icelanders referred to their society as Our Law, Varlog a phrase which shows that they thought of law and society as two ways of expressing the same thing. Law was a psychological enclosure that separated the social from the antisocial, the Inangard from the Utengard. This is why the punishment for especially heinous crimes was outlawry, whereby a person was lost of his or her legal rights and could be killed on sight without any legal repercussions against the killer. Through the crime, the outlaw had demonstrated that he or she was an Utengard, being rather an Utengard being rather than an Inangard one, and since the criminal was beyond society's control, he or she was accordingly stripped of society's protection. 
The very words related to outlawry demonstrate this transition from being a civilized person to a wild one. Outlawry was called going into the forest, Skogungur, and the outlaw was called a person from the forest, Skogarmatur. Fittingly, outlaws often chose to flee as far from human habitations as possible, and for obvious reasons. The king or chieftain probably would have been seen as the equivalent of the central pillar or tree, the axis that held the order of the rest of society together. However, this is never stated explicitly, so it must remain a conjecture. The old other world was organized in the same way. At its center was a mighty tree, most commonly called Yggdrasil. Yggdrasil, spelled the same in Old Norse. The horse or the terrible one. That is Odin, a reference to Odin commonly used its commonly used its sprawling branches and roots to travel through the other world. However, its name, like its species, varied from source to source. Another reminder of the diversity and malleability of Norse religion. Malleability? Several creatures were said to live on or in the tree. In its crown nested an untamed eagle, while at its base coiled a dreadful certain serpent named Nidhog, Nidhogger, Slanderer, who gnawed away at the tree's roots in an apparent attempt to fell it. A squirrel named Ratatosk, Ratatosker, Drilltooth, scurried up and down the trunk, ferrying insults between the eagle and the snake. <laughs> Deer nibbled the tree's shoots. Different pieces of Old Norse literature mention different wells or springs that lay among the roots of Yggdrasil. The most commonly mentioned are the Well of Fate, Urthurbrunner, Mirim's Well, Mimisbrunner, and Fergulmer, whose meaning and etymology are unknown. Some scholars have, rather arbitrarily, tried to reduce them all to a single original well, while others have accepted each description at face value, regardless of the apparent confusion on, on this point in and amongst the texts themselves. There does seem to have been an authentic, authentic tradition of wells being located beneath Yggdrasil, but it's impossible to know how many there were and what functions, if any, they served. For that matter, as with countless other elements of Old Norse religion, different people and groups of people probably had different views on the topic during the Viking Age itself. The homeland of the gods, Asgard, Asgarther, enclosure of the gods, was located right around Yggdrasil's trunk. In the same way, the main house of the Viking farmstead wrapped itself around the central pillar or was located next to the central tree. We can safely assume this 
due to the guard enclosure element of Asgard's name, as well as the fact that the gods were considered to be forces that held the cosmos together, like the central pillar of a Viking house. Their homeland then would have been the central enclosure of the other world, the quintessentially Inangard part of the cosmos. Cosmos. A rainbow, Bifrost, Bifrost, fleetingly glimpsed rainbow, was the entryway into Asgard. Thus, Asgard was likely visualized as a magnificent fortress high in the heavens, perhaps in the upper central branches of Yggdrasil. Jotunheim, Jotunheimer, the homeland of the giants, was by contrast the quintessentially Utengard part of the other world. In fact, it was sometimes called Utgard, Utgarther, which means the same thing as Utengard. Appropriately, for the dwelling place of the primordial spirits of chaos, Jotunheim was visualized as being like the parts of the northern European landscape that the Norse dreaded the most. Today, an especially desolate, desolate, icy, and remote part of Norway's central mountain range is called Jotunheimen, a modern Norwegian version of Jotunheim which is probably the most appropriate of all possible names for such a place in Scandinavia. Since Jotunheim was the other world's counterpart to the wilderness, outside the perimeter of a Viking farm, it was probably the part of the cosmos most distant from Yggdrasil's, Yggdrasil's stout trunk. At the far end of Jotunheim was the endless ocean in which Jormungand, that enormous serpent whom Thor particularly particularly hated, encircled the land. <clears throat> the visible, tangible world in which the humans live our daily lives was called Midgard, Mythgarther, Middle Enclosure, which incidentally is where J.R.R. Tolkien got the name for Middle-earth. As the guard element in its name implies, Midgard was thought of as basically in Inengard place. However, the mid element in its name implies Midgard wasn't an Inengard as Asgard. Instead, it occupied a middle position between Asgard and Jotunheim. On the Inengard-Utengard spectrum, it was always the object of a grand tug-of-war between the gods and the giants. Somewhat contradictorily, Jormungand was thought to dwell was thought to dwell in the oceans around Midgard as well as the oceans around Jotunheim in the other world, hence one of its titles, Midgard's Serpent. Midgardsurmer. Midgard in addition to Asgard and Jotunheim, there were a number of other places that the sources seemed to indicate were similarly distant realms within the other world. 
No definitive list of them is ever given, and it's highly, highly unlikely that any definitive list ever existed, due once again to the unsystematic and non-dogmatic character of Norse religion. However, there might be some merit to the modern idea of nine worlds in Norse cosmology, even though the concept is usually overstated today. The number nine was held to possess some deep, intrinsic, and likely magical significance in Norse, in Norse religion, even though no one really knows why. Philologist Rudolf Simek ably summarizes one of the number's occurrences throughout Norse religion and myth. Here's a, a long quote. Nine is the mythical number of the Germanic tribes. Documentation for the significance of the number nine is found in both myth and cult. In Odin's self-sacrifice, he hung for nine nights in the windy tree Havamal. There are nine worlds of Niflhel, Vabr. Nismal, 43. Heimdallr was born to nine, brother, nine mothers. Ferrer had to wait nine nights for his marriage to Gerd. I'm skipping all the citations. And eight nights equals nine days was the time of betrothal given to Brimskvata. Literally, embellishments in the Eddas similarly use the numbers nine. Skathi and Njortr lived alternately for nine days in Nortun and in Brimheimer. Every ninth night, eight equally heavily heavy rings Drip from the ring Dropnir. Mengluth has nine maidens to serve her, and Eger has many daughters. Thor can take nine steps at the Ragnarok after his battle with the Midgard serpent before he falls down dead. Sacrificial feasts lasting nine days are mentioned for both Uppsala and Lagiri. Lagiri? And that these supposedly nine victims were sacrificed each day. End quote. Huh, so nine is important, apparently. <laughs> Thus, it is far from unreasonable that the number nine might have been featured prominently in Norse cosmology as well. And indeed, Old Norse literature gives some hints that this might have been the case. One poem, The Prophecy of Cyrus, includes a passing reference to nine worlds, Nui Haimar, within the branches and roots of Yggdrasil, while another, The Song of Vafthrudnir, Old Norse Vaf. Pratnismal mentions nine subworlds within the underworld. 
The Vikings didn't believe in nine worlds in the same way that some literalist Christians today believe that the earth was created in seven days. Rather, the Vikings believed in a number of distant modalities of a general other world, and since nine is a significant number to them, some or all of those realms were sometimes said to comprise a group of nine. I wonder... So you can count to 12 using the knuckles of your fingers. I wonder if 9 was important because most Vikings were missing a finger. <laughs> okay. Due to a number of parallels in the cosmologies of other northern Eurasian cultures, as well as that line in the prophecy of the Cirrus, it's very likely that the realms were arranged in and around the branches and roots of Yggdrasil. Beyond that, and the farmstead-like Inengard-Utengard pattern we've already examined, however, it's impossible to say with any significant degree of certainty how the various realms were organized. No diagrams of them from the Viking Age or medieval periods have come down to us, and it's highly unlikely that the Vikings themselves made such diagrams, or, for that matter, felt the need to make them. For obvious reasons, the picture, pictures common on the internet of Kabbalah-like or Chakra-like schemes are nothing more than New Age fantasies. Furthermore, as we've seen, the various kinds of spiritual beings that populated the Old Norse universe, gods, giants, elves, dwarves, land spirits, spirits, dead ancestors, etc., overlapped with each other to a considerable degree, and it's therefore probable that the boundaries between their homelands were blurry as well. In the excellent formulation of historian H.R. Ellis Davidson, quote, the impression of poems give is not the impression the poems give is not of a planned or rational world but rather a series of vivid images which build up a vague but powerful world picture end quote the desire to create a planned and rational world out of the cosmological lore scattered throughout old norse literature is a thoroughly modern one the vikings didn't share our lust for rational order but if we were to indulge that lust momentarily, we might end up with a list of nine worlds that looks something like this. 1. Asgard, the god's celestial fortress. 2. Jotunheim, the chaotic, wild regions of the giants. 3. Alfheim, the homeland of the elves, which is never described in the sources. 4. Nadavilir, not the Vilir, low fields, the cavernous home of the dwarves. Five, Vanaheim, Vanaheimer, the homeland of the Vanir, which is never described in the sources. Six, Hell, H-E-L, the underworld where the dead dwelt, which we'll explore in detail in a later chapter. Seven, Muspelheim, Muspelsheimer, something like World of Destruction by Fire, the Land of Elemental Fire, 8, Niflheim, 
Niflheimer, World of Darkness, and Land of Elemental Ice. And finally, nine, Midgard, the material world, and the one of, of the nine that wasn't part of the other world. I emphasize that this list is a modern creation, my own in fact, based on the sources, not one that the sources themselves report. But maybe, just maybe, somewhere, sometime, some Viking taught his son that these were the nine realms, realms where the basic parts of the cosmos, and he, no doubt, would have added a great deal of colorful, illuminating information that has been utterly lost in the gaping expanse of the intervening centuries. <clears throat> Subchapter Time That, in a nutshell, is how the Vikings thought of this spatial layout of the other world, and of their cosmos more broadly. But how did they think of time within that cosmos? Many people in modern times have asserted that the Vikings had an essentially cynical view of time, with periodic destructions of the cosmos that were followed by its rebirth. I used to hold this position in the past too, for that matter. However, the only evidence for such a view in the sources is a misinterpretation of two particular Old Norse poems that we'll look at closely in a moment. The view that the Norse had a fundamentally linear conception of time, on the contrary, has a wealth of evidence to support it. For one thing, as we've seen, the gods and other divine beings routinely intervened in linear time to shape the course of historical events. Odin directed the outcomes of battles, the land spirits rewarded those who respected them and punished those who wronged them, Thor crushed a giant every time the thunder struck, the giants brought disease, famine, and all kinds of other ills if the people didn't sacrifice to them to keep them at bay, Freya, Frey, Njord, Thor, Sif, and others were responsible for the fertility of the land and for bountiful harvests, and so on. These weren't simply activities the divine beings dabbled in here and there. They were part of a parcel, they were part and parcel of their very existence, as the forces who actively upheld the well-beings and order of the cosmos, or in the case of the giants, the forces who actively sought to undermine that well-being and order. The inhabitants of the other world lived in linear time, and the cosmos they shaped unfolded in linear time. Furthermore, the cosmos was seen as having a definite being, uh, a definite beginning and end. It was created at a particular moment in the past, and it will be destroyed at a particular moment in the future. Ragnarok. We'll explore the myths of creation and Ragnarok in part two. But for now, it's simply enough to note that the process of time in the myths was framed by these two decisive one-off events. Complicating this picture, however, there are three pieces of Old Norse literature that speak of rebirth, speak of a rebirth of the cosmos after Ragnarok. What are we to do with them? Two of these sources are Edic poems, the prophecy of the seeress and the song of Vafthrudnir. The third is Snorri Sturluson's Prose Eda. Snorri's account of the downfall and rebirth of the cosmos includes no details that aren't also present in those two poems, both of which he quotes extensively throughout the, proto, 
throughout the Pros Ida and in this particular passage. The most reasonably con- reasonable conclusion is that Snorri used some of those two poems and only those two poems as his sources for his account of regeneration after Ragnarok. So there are likely only two pieces of Old Norse literature that were, as far as we can tell, composed of independent composed independently of one another that include a rebirth narrative. And now remember, um this guy Snorri Sturlson I think Oh, I forget now. But I think he was around the 1300s, uh, 14th century, maybe, or 1600s. Anyways, he was several hundred years ago. Okay. Like many of the poems that comprise the poetic Edda, the prophecy of the Cirrus and the song of Vafthrudnir were composed during the latter part of the Viking Age, or the middle, the early Middle Ages, during that period when the ancient Norse religion was transitioning to medieval Christianity. Oh, maybe he's going to talk about when Snorri was. I say transitioning because this was by no means a swift, decisive replacement. It was a process that took centuries, and while it was underway, there was plenty of time for especially thoughtful individuals to interpret and comment on that process and its significance. The prophecy of the Cirrus does just that, despite many people's insistence on seeing it as a conservative Viking's stirring tribute to the old ways, or even some kind of Norse catechism. It's actually the work of a Christian, or at least a Christian-leaning poet, attempting to demonstrate that the traditional religion of his people had prophesied the arrival and triumph of a new superior religion. To make its case, it draws on traditional imagery and ideas, but casts them into radically innovative light. Nope. Radically invocative. No. Innovative is right. Okay, never mind then. Christian influence permeates the poem. Traditionally, the no, the Norse saw the universe as being basically amoral and working toward no higher purpose of any sort. We've already seen some degree of this in, char- in the characters of the gods and goddesses, and the rest of the picture will be filled in by later chapters. But for the author of the prophecy of the seeress, this was not so. Instead, the cosmos and the progression of events within it was full of moral purpose, just as in medieval Christianity. The poem imagines that immediately after the gods create the cosmos, there were no giants in it. Oh, created the cosmos. There were no giants in it, and the golden age of prosperity, peace, happiness, justice, and play prevailed. Then a fall, parallel to that of Adam and Eve, occurred as three giant maidens entered the cosmos from the chaos of Jotunheim and brought an end to the earlier bliss and righteousness. Several stanzas later, we find the one and only portrayal of moral punishment in the afterlife in all of Old Norse literature. Murderers, adulterers, and other wicked people are tortured, are torturously dismembered by the monster's 
Nidhogg and Fenrir in a place called the Shore of Corpses. The moral worth of the universe, including gods and humans, decays steadily throughout the poem. In a move highly reminiscent of the apocalyptic version of the book, the apocalyptic vision of the book of Revelation in the New Testament, Ragnarok is depicted as a necessary purification to rid the world of evil. The world that comes after Ragnarok is a new golden age cleansed of any giants that might otherwise taint it. Stanza 65 is particularly telling. Quote, then from above comes the mighty ruler to divinely judge and to rule over all. End quote. Who could this be but Christ? The prophecy of the seeress is ultimately heralding the coming domination of the all-powerful, all-virtuous new god from the south, whose victory it sees as inevitable and praiseworthy. The poet of the song of Vafthrundur, Vafthrundur? Vafthrudnir, The poet of the Song of Vafthredner was more neutral and also less ingenious. His work doesn't seem to have any particularly any particular axe to grind. It's simply a compilation of a large amount of disconnected scraps of mythical lore, which I recounted through a clever framing story about a contest between Odin and a giant named Vafthredner. Yet there's every reason to believe that the lore he's collected in his poem has already heavily yet there's every reason to believe that the lore he collected in his poem was already heavily influenced by Christianity indeed it would have been difficult for it not to have been <clears throat> his account of a rebirth of the cosmos after Ragnarok came from the same socio-historical context in which the prophecy of the Cirrus was written. I'm going to get a drink of water. In the 10th and 11th centuries, when the Old Norse religion was being replaced by Christianity all across the, North, the Norse lands, many Vikings came to believe that they were living through Ragnarok. After all, according to the tales, weren't the gods going to perish in that final battle? Now that the gods were indeed falling, didn't that mean that the prophesied collapse of the gods and their world had come at last? But in that period, a new god and a new world were rising from the ashes of the old gods and the old world. So it seemed to them that while the prophecies of Ragnarok had been correct, they had neglected to mention that Ragnarok wasn't the end of everything. Instead, it was followed by another, different world. Could this have been the origin of the idea that a rebirth followed Ragnarok? <clears throat> The evidence, considered as a whole, suggests that this was indeed the case. Again, there are no pieces of Old Norse literature that mention a rebirth after Ragnarok. If 
but there are several pieces of Old Norse literature that, and in fact, lots and lots of pieces of literature from across Northern Europe, from poems to folk tales to oath formulas, that mention a future cataclysmic end of the cosmos with cosmos, with no subsequent revival. Some of them, such as the skaldic poems, the Song of King Eric, and the Song of King Hakon are considerably older than the prophecy of the Cirrus and the Song of Vafthrudner. Furthermore, the tone of these passages, passages is ominous and tragic. Any hint of the exuberance and hope of the rebirth stanzas of the prophecy of the Cirrus and the Song of Vafthrudner is utterly crushingly lacking. Surely, if these passages had simply neglected to mention a widespread belief in a rejuvenation of the cosmos after Ragnarok, there wouldn't be so many of them, and they might have at least alluded to it in their tone or by other subtle means. But nothing of this of the sort is anywhere to be found. The striking conclusion is that, at least originally, the Norse saw Ragnarok as a one-off event in the future that would obliterate every trace of the cosmos to which they belonged and which their cherished gods upheld. <clears throat> the Old Norse view of time and its end might strike us as exceptionally gloomy, even despairing, and no one... And on one level, it was indeed, indeed gloomy and despairing. But as we'll see in the next chapter, the Vikings found existential comfort not in what was going to happen to them in the future, but in how they met whatever it was that happened to them. Let's see. Almost a quarter of the way through the book now. Chapter 5. Fate. What have I dreamed? wondered Odin as he awoke. It seemed to me that I was going around and walking the noble warriors, uh, <laughs> waking the noble warriors who dwelt with, here, dwelt with me here in Valhalla. I told them to cover the benches, the benches of the feasting hall with fine furs and to wash the drinking horns. I told the Valkyries to fetch the mead and prepare to, to serve it. It seemed we were getting ready for a sumptuous feast, as if to welcome a great hero into our midst. The walls of Valhalla began trembling just before the, the walls of Valhalla began to tremble, first just enough to be perceptible, and then with mounting intensity. A low, insistent rumbling could be heard approaching from afar. Odin left his chambers and found Bragi, his court poet. Sitting in the main hall, he asked the learned minstrel, What is causing this commotion? It sounds like some fierce army approaching. Bragi replied, I, the timbers of the benches are, are creaking, as if Baldur himself were coming back from the depths. Although Bragi had said these words lightly and innocently, Odin couldn't help but be stung by the, by the reminder of his beloved son's death. Regardless of how much he yearned to see Baldur again, he knew that it was impossible. Stop being foolish, Bragi, admonished Odin, and with unintended curtness, 
and with an unintended curtness that surprised even him. <laughs> Regaining his composure, Odin went on, No, you who are so wise and learned must surely know that this is someone else, and I have an idea of who it is. Who then asked Bragi with either eager curiosity? It can surely be no other than King Eric Bloodaxe. Eric? Eric? replied Odin, who had himself arranged the death of the fearsome king. By now the warriors who lived in the hall and had all woken and assembled around their ruler and his poet, anxious to know what was going on. Odin tur turned to Sigmund and Sinfjotli, two of his best men, pointing to the door he told them, Go and welcome King Eirik, if it is indeed him. Before obeying his commander's orders, Sigmund summoned up the courage to ask him a question he had been struggling with for some time. Why did the god strike down the best and noblest warriors and bring them to his hall? Rather than posing this question directly, he might have seemed, which might have seemed impertinent, he couched it in a more con in more uh, in he couched it in more concrete language. My lord, if I may, why is it that you desired to bring Eirik to your hall rather than any of the other kings of the world? Because Odin answered casually and quickly, he has reddened his sword in too many count countries to count. Sigmund's curiosity overcame his his prudence and he blurted out in response but why did you snatch out of his hands the victory that was due to him and by your own admission he was so valiant Sigmund realized only after he had spoken that he had just questioned the master's judgment he braced himself for whatever would happen next but instead of being wrathful or even cross Odin's expression became one of dejection he sighed deeply and stared down at the floor for a long moment. Despite the tumult going on outside, the total silence of astonished warriors within the hall was palpable. Finally, his eyes still on the floor, he answered gravely, because no one knows when Ragnarok will arrive, and the wolf will finally make his way here to kill me. So goes the song of Eirik. How could Odin have known that a dreadful beast, Fenrir, would one day slay him, which spurred him to amass an army of the most elite human warriors in a futile hope of averting his death. It was partly due to how far-seeing Odin was, but in order to have all... Uh, but in order for him to have had knowledge of what was going to happen in the future, the future had to have been foreordained. The Norse Conception of Fate The idea of fate permeated the religion of the Vikings at every turn. Everything in the universe, even the gods, was subject to it. 
There was at least six terms for fate in Old Norse. Orlog, Scope, Mjotuthr, Outhna, Forlog, and Uther. Uh, sorry, Uther. Of these, Outhna, Mjotuthr, and Uther meant fate in every other direct in in a very direct sense with few subtleties forloger and orlog both meant first law the original and most powerful set of guidelines that guidelines that govern behavior and scope from the same root as the modern english word shape refer to a coherent structure that produced a reliable outcome Fate occupied roughly the same position in the Norse worldview that the laws of science do in the modern world. It provided an unseen guiding principle that determined how events in the world would unfold and could explain them after they had occurred. Questioning the reality and omnipotence of fate would have been laughable and a most unthinkable, and almost unthinkable. The Edic poem, The Song of Fafnir, warned its readers that it is ridiculous and foolhardy to struggle against fate, as it is to row a boat against a strong wind. Fate had nothing whatsoever to do with notions like morality or justice, the Vikings' standards of morality and justice, or anybody else's karma. Oops. <laughs> Let me try that again. Fate had nothing whatsoever to do with notions like morality or justice, the Viking standards of morality and justice, or anybody else's. Karma, for example, is a concept that was completely alien to the Viking Age view. This was a quintessentially blind fate, utterly apathetic to the well-being of those caught up within it. To be sure, what we today would call cause and effect was taken into account. Judicial proceedings to cite but one example operated on the basis of assuming personal responsibility for one's own actions. But notions of cause and effect were, of a person responsibility, were seen as necessary superficialities and were contextualized by the deeper explanatory framework of fate. For example, those same judicial proceedings were often seen as the instruments of fate and the laws they upheld were seen as having been built on the first law. After all, in such perspective, how could they not be? The Norns. Several Old Norse sources mention a group of female entities who personally shaped the fate of all beings. The Norns, Old Norse Nornir, singular Norn, they lived at the base of Yggdrasil, the mighty tree at the center of the cosmos, in a great hall by the well of fate, Urtharbrunner, Urtharbrunner, 
They took mud and water from the well and poured them over the tree's roots, preventing them from dying out or rotting. Runes, the magical alphabet of the Norse, were inscribed on their fingernails. Different images were used for the Norns' fate-crafting activity. Sometimes they were said to weave a person's life like an intricate web, ending it by cutting the last thread. At other times, they were said to cut a person's fate into pieces of wood. This has usually been interpreted to have meant that they, that they uh, wrote out the course of lifetime in runes, and very well could have meant that. However, in Norway, time was traditionally reckoned by cutting notches into a wooden plank above a window, and it's equally plausible that this practice is what such passages were referencing. The sources don't share any consensus on how many Norse, on how many Norns there were. Some say there were lar- there was a large but unknown number of them, while others hold that there were exactly three. In the latter case, their names were usually given as Urd, Urther, Fate, Verdendi, Verdendi, Becoming, and Scold, or Debt. Fitting names for such beings. There is no evidence that the Norns were ever worshipped. Perhaps we shouldn't be surprised by this. After all, what could the Vikings have hoped to gain by worshipping entities who were utterly implacable? Responses to Fate The concept of fate provided the Norse with a means of addressing timeless existential anxieties. Naturally, different people took different approaches to this task, and the same person might have taken different approaches at different times. All people have always wanted to be able to predict the future. Consider how seriously we take meteorologists in our own society, for example. But whereas we have seen the future... But whereas we see the future as an open field of possibilities, and we typically issue and receive weather forecasts with a grain of salt, the Norse had to come to terms with a future whose core structure was rigidly fixed. Fundamentally, things could only happen one foreordained way. Thus, they often sought out the help of seers and seeresses, who those with privileged access to the future shape of things, either out of a desire to take that shape into account when making plans, or out of simple fear. Kings and other military leaders would consult with seers and seeresses on the eve of battle, and communities might invite a seer or seeress before the spring planting began to cite but two examples. Humans weren't the only ones who called upon professional soothsayers. The deities did too. At other times, fate was helplessly cursed. Evil is the decree of the Norns, moans one saga. But the attitude toward the fate that Viking society held up as the ideal one was a heroic stoicism. In words of archaeologist Neil Price, the outcome of our actions, our fate, is already decided and therefore does not matter. What is important is the manner of our conduct as we go to meet it. You couldn't change what was going to happen to you, but you could at least face it with honor and dignity. The best death was to go down fighting, 
preferably with a smile on your lips. Life is precarious by its very nature, but this was especially true in the Viking Age, which made this fatalism and stoicism in the face of it especially poignant. Poignant. That's a new word for me. Means evoking a keen sense of sadness or regret. The model of this ideal was Odin's amassing an army in Valhalla in preparation of Ragnarok. He knew that Fenrir, the wolf, was going to murder him one way or the or another. Perhaps on some level he hoped that by gathering all the best warriors to fight alongside him, he could somehow prevent the inevitable. But deep down, he knew that his struggle was hopeless, yet he determined to struggle just the same, and to die in the most radiant blaze of glory he could muster. Another example of the same attitude is uh, another example of this same attitude, this time on a less cosmic and more humble scale, comes from the life of the warrior poet Eagle Scala Grimson. According to his saga, toward the end of his life, one of his sons died, after others had died before him. Such was the depth of Eagle's grief that he planned to kill himself, but his surviving daughter convinced him to instead use his poetic talent to compose a memorial poem for his lost children. Eagle's poem is called The Wreck of Sons, Sonatoric. In it, Eagle bemoans his lot in life and curses Odin, his patron god, for having made him suffer so much. But Eagle finds that his suffering has also carried a gift within it, for his anguish inspires him to compose better poetry than ever before. He lets loose an eloquent cry of both despair and joy, or at least contented acceptance. The final three stanzas read, quote, I offer nothing with an eager heart to the greatest of gods, the willful Odin, but I must concede that the friend of the wise has paid me well for all my wounds. The battle-tested foe of the wolf has given me a towering art and wits to discern in those around me who wishes well, who wishes ill. Sometimes are dire, yet glad is my heart, full of courage without complaint. I wait for the goddess of dirt and of death, who stands on the headland to bear me away. End quote. Next time we get to learn about morality.